I could say I'm the most bully person on on the world. You think you're the most bullied person? On the world? One, one of them. Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, KYAQ Central Coast, Queso Cottage Grove, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WTPA, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ. Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California, KFOI, Round Mountain, California, KKRN, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but today Brad and Des are on the road. So I'm sitting in. I'm Angie Cuero, host of In Deep with Angie Cuero, heard on many of these same stations and streams. Nothing, I will say, in this hour matters as much as this. Register to vote. Register to vote. If you think you're registered to vote, make sure you and your friends and your family are in fact registered. Make sure they know to check the registration, not to assume an earlier registration is still in effect. You know, for many years' coverage here, nothing can be assumed where the right to vote is under assault. Deadlines over the next few days for registration. Friday, this Friday, Idaho, New York, North Carolina. You can't in North Carolina register online, but there is a three-day extension in effect for counties that have been hit by Hurricane Florence. In Oklahoma, got to do it in person, nothing online. That's the Friday registration deadlines. Saturday, October 13th, is your last chance to register in Delaware. Monday, October 15th, in Virginia. And as the days go by, stay tuned here on the broadcast. Brad and Des will keep you abreast of all the registration dates. But do be sure you are registered. There's a serious effort underway to purge the voter rolls. I know you know that. Let's check out some news. And then later this hour, Soraya Shamali on her new book, Rage Becomes Her. Speaking of rage, Reuters has a story assessing the possibility of Brett Kavanaugh recusing himself when cases with obvious conflicts of interest come before the Supreme Court. All right, who thinks he will do the honorable thing? You in the back, put your hand down. Nobody Reuters interviewed thinks there is a chance in hell he would do that, even when the conflict of interest is obvious. My words, not theirs. Some direct quotes from the piece. Federal law requires a justice to disqualify himself from deciding cases, quote, in which his, they still say his, impartiality might reasonably be questioned. Supreme Court justices rarely recuse. University of Michigan Law School professor Richard Primus said, quote, for Kavanaugh to recuse would be for him to say, yes, I understand you don't trust me and I validate that concern. He is not going to say that. 
Well, yeah. Back to the article. Kavanaugh repeatedly assailed the Democrats, prompting questions about whether he could be fair in disputes involving Democrats or liberal groups. He complained of a calculated and orchestrated political hit by Democrats fueled by their anger over Trump's 2016 election victory, the called the conduct of some Democratic senators, on, quote, an embarrassment. Nonetheless, New York University School of Law legal ethics expert me. Stephen Gillers said, Kavanaugh's remarks were, quote, too broad and unfocused to give anyone the basis for a recusal motion. Credit to Reuters for this bit of comic relief at the end. Emmett Bondurant, a lawyer involved in a major political case heading toward the court, said, quote, one has to assume, no matter what was said during the confirmation process, that he will approach each case, including this one, with an open mind. Ha ha ha! What a card. The situation with disappeared Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi is getting grimmer and grimmer. Today, the paper ran a blank space in place of his column while conflicting accounts are flying as to his fate. Turkish officials say he is dead, that the writer who focused on Saudi Arabia and is no friend of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was lured to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul and then killed. Turkey is likewise no friend of Saudi Arabia, so its report has to be taken in that contest. Context, that is. According to the Post... A former U.S. intelligence official who, like others, spoke on the condition of anonymity noted the details of the operation, which involved sending two teams totaling 15 men in two private aircraft arriving and departing Turkey at different times, bore the landmarks of a rendition, the hallmarks rather, bore the hallmarks of a rendition in which someone is extra-legally removed from one country and deposited for interrogation in another. But, the article continues, Turkish officials have concluded that whatever the intent of the operation, Khashoggi was killed inside the consulate. Investigators have not found his body, but Turkish officials have released video surveillance footage of Khashoggi entering the consulate on the afternoon of October 2nd. They say there is no footage that shows him leaving. In a very rare show of unanimity, a group of senators from both sides of the aisle have asked Donald Trump to look into Khashoggi's vanishing. Now, there's an act called the Magnitsky Act. It allows the U.S. government to shut down interactions with human rights offenders. That means freezing their assets and banning them from entering the U.S. The senators cited the act in its letter to Trump. Now, there are three problems here. The act was signed into law by President Obama. And anything with that stamp on it is anathema to the White House occupant. And the U.S. sells arms to the Saudis, not something Trump is eager to stop doing. And finally, Prince Mohammed and Jared Kushner are buddies. Just to complicate the picture further, the U.S. is negotiating with Turkey to get an American pastor freed from one of its prisons. There is some optimism that will succeed this week, but a similar effort disintegrated last summer. Another layer there. Other news. Joe Biden was in London on Wednesday where he predicted Democrats will win 40 seats in the White House. Pardon me, 40 seats in the House. I want Democrats back in the White House. Can you tell? Let's try that again. Joe Biden was in London. He predicted Democrats will win 40 seats in the House in the midterm vote. 
He said, too, there is a better-than-even chance Dems will take back the Senate. Biden noted that Trump's is the only presidency he's been around for where the economy is doing well, but the president's approval numbers stay down. He made those comments before yet another catastrophic day on the stock market. Time.com notes that on Thursday, European shares hit their lowest mark since 2016. Also noting, quote, more companies are speaking up about the trade conflict's impact on their business. Is America great again yet? So who was that beleaguered, bullied woman? I could say I'm the most bullied person on on the world. You think you're the most bullied person in the world? One of them, if you really see what people are saying about me. None other than the First Lady of the U.S. has unmasked herself as one of the most bullied people in the world. That there is a clip from her appearance on Good Morning America touting her longer interview to air nationally. In case you thought there was only one delusional Trump in the White House, there you go. He's got company. Ms. I Don't Care Do You made no mention of the ultimate bullying taking place every day, being attacked and left bleeding on the street for being LGBT, or shot because you're a kid with a toy gun, or doxxed and chased off the internet for the audacity of being a woman gamer. Just some of the nearly 6,000 hate crimes reported annually. Leading targets of hate crimes, a.k.a. the ultimate bullying, LGBT, Jewish Americans, Black Americans, and Muslims. Curiously, privileged rich women with Einstein visas don't appear anywhere on that list. Request. Be better. Shea Trump is already moving to dismiss another of her comments about untrusted bodies in the White House. Stay tuned for more on that. I am not even going to talk about Kanye visiting the White House. Whatever. Much more important, new statistic out today, covered by the Washington Post. The percentage of young kids going unvaccinated has quadrupled since 2001. Quadrupled. Now, kudos to the Washington Post for putting this in context right up front in the article. Quote, overall, immunization rates remain high and haven't changed that much at the national level. That's good news. The vast majority of parents across the country vaccinate their children and follow recommended schedules for this basic preventive practice. Also good news. Still, the idiocy perpetrated by Andrew Wakefield with his fraudulent science way back in 1998 is still reverberating. There is no punishment. It's nearly approached the damage that he has done. Another Black Friday's protest is in the works for the end of the week. More on that later this hour. Protests in D.C. are under new threat, courtesy of Donald Trump. The ACLU is sounding the horn about restrictions that will make it too complicated and too expensive for traditional protests at the White House. From the ACLU press release, the Trump administration proposes to dramatically limit the right to demonstrate near the White House and on the National Mall, including in ways that would violate court orders that have stood for decades. The proposal would close 80% of the White House sidewalk, put new limits on spontaneous demonstrations, and open the door to charging fees for protesting. Fee requirements could make mass protests like Martin Luther King's historic 1963 March on Washington and the iconic I Have a Dream speech too expensive to happen. The Park Service plans to close 20 feet of the 25-foot-wide White House sidewalk, 20 feet. 
That limits, limits demonstrators, according to the ACLU, to a five-foot sliver along Pennsylvania Avenue. The closure would violate the earlier court order, which permits demonstrations by at least 750 people on the White House sidewalk and declares that any lower limit is, quote, invalid and void as an unconstitutional infringement of the plaintiff's right to freedom of speech and to assemble peaceably and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Okay, there's that, and there's a load of other permit timing and fee changes. We can get on top of this. The comment period is short. I will put the link for the government page for comments on Brad's site. And you can also sign the ACLU letter. That's online at aclu.org. Let's take a break here. Around the corner, what the Black Friday's campaign is and what it hopes to accomplish. I'm Angie Corro. This is the Bradcast. Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the Bradcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. It's the Bradcast. I'm Angie Coro in for Brad and Desi. It is a travel day for them. In a few minutes, we're going to hear from Soraya Shamali with her critical social and scientific review of American women's anger. Her book is Rage Becomes Her. And it certainly does. The rage over the elevation of an essentially unvetted accused sexual predator. See any number of accounts from Brett Kavanaugh's acquaintances who couldn't get through to the FBI in its pseudo-investigation. That rage continues, justifiably so. If justice prevails, that rage will be answered with the removal of said accused predator from the highest court in the land. One of the components in play is the Black Friday's campaign. It is a call to action for women to put themselves on the record every week, once a week, by wearing black, and if at all possible, walking out of work at 3 p.m. local time every Friday. Let me bring on Nalini Stamp, organizing director of the Working Families Party and organizer of Black Fridays. Thanks for taking some time. Thank you so much for having me, Nancy. I really appreciate it. So this is going to be the second Black Friday. Let's talk about how that first one worked. The idea is to get women to unify by wearing black on Friday if it's possible for them to get up and walk out of the office at 3 p.m., what kind of response did you see to that first one? Absolutely. Um, you know, we, it was many women, majority women of color who, and when we use women, we mean the expansiveness of the term. Sometimes we use an X um, just to understand that we're also meeting two-spirited people, gender non-conforming folks and folks who are, have been violent to the patriarchy um, mm-hmm. or oppressed by the patriarchy. And last week, um, we started with a call um, that came out that said we're going to do this every Friday until November 23rd um, to have a, 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 a ability for women to kind of take action on mass. Last week, we had women walk out of their offices. There are these women brewers who walked out in the Pacific Northwest. We had um, the Tracy Ellis Ross walk out with um, some of the cast and crew of Blackish. Wow, that's incredible. It was incredible. And we had so many people who took other actions. I, along with a bunch of women, um, interrupted Senator Collins before she spoke and said her most awful speech and, and became a rape apologist um, on the Senate floor. Um, mm-hmm. And we had 
and we had obviously the actions that were happening in DC and we had so many women who maybe couldn't walk out or couldn't really express but took pictures of their family wearing black that day and people there were thousands of people who were wearing black in solidarity who couldn't take a higher action um, as some of us did you know I'll I'll tell you Nalini the the question that a lot of people have is well you know you're going to walk out on a Friday and you're going to make your point and he's on the court and he's going to stay there One of the things I think is important to understand about campaigns is that they're multifaceted. There's that stated goal, of course, we don't want him on the Supreme Court, but there's a lot more to be said for raised awareness and unifying the message. So can you tell me the scope of things that at best can be accomplished with this? Absolutely. Well, first, the reason why we're doing uh, Black Friday is continuing through the midterms and after the elections is one. We want to be able to get massive amounts of women to be active in elections um, by walking out and doing GOTV on October 26th and um, uh, November 2nd. So walking out and getting out the vote. Um, We want to have demands on the incoming Congress, right? This isn't just, I think this is is the tip of the iceberg for women. And we want to show that because it's not just the Kavanaugh appointment. It's not just... um, um, the fact that uh, you know we have the need to we have a president that is um, that uh, that is a sexual assaulter. It's the fact that there are hundreds um, of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Um, there are mm-hmm. women who have been separated by their families through this administration. There are trans women of color who are still being murdered at such high rates. There are Black women who are being incarcerated by our unjust incarceration system. So this movement, it, we want to expand both like being fueled by a Kavanaugh being the tip of the iceberg, but we want to expand because this administration does not care about us. And so we must not comply. And we're doing this by mm-hmm. taking action every week. Let me ask you one more question, because I know you have to go. Joe Biden was talking in London yesterday, and he said that he has real optimism that not only could the Dems take over the House, but also the Senate. He said a better than even chance. Do you think we'd see real change even if the Democrats were to come in? Or is this something that we're just going to have to continue to keep protesting and keep raising awareness? I think we have to. I mean, here's the thing, right? Um um, I was a part of the Occupy Wall Street movement, um, which was a few years after Democrats took in power. It was also after the Tea Party, where Republicans took control of Congress, but there was still a Democratic sitting president, um, because I was frustrated that um, when Democrats were in power, they didn't do much to hold the banks accountable. Um, we, I, For me, I obviously, there is a party that is standing for values, and then there's a party that's not, but we have to hold all of these folks accountable. We had a Democrat in West Virginia vote for Kavanaugh, right? And so we have to Mm -hmm. shift the political spectrum. Um, I fundamentally believe we're still living in the Reagan alignment, which was a coalition of of people who elected Reagan when he was president. And so if we're living in that environment, right, we can only get so much done. But if we create a new political alignment that holds all of our elected officials accountable, whether they are Democrats or whether they are Republicans, obviously knowing, like, there is a, there is a, there is a party that is doing far more harm to us, right? Obviously, knowing that we mm-hmm. always have to hold politicians accountable. The movement never ends, right? Um, they, they, our organizing never ends because we will always have problems until we have a just society that works for the many and not the few in this country. 
Nalini Stamp, organizing director of the Working Families Party and organizer of Black Fridays, thank you so much. And I'm going to put your website on our site at the broadcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jen. We really appreciate it. And thanks to all who listening. That conversation is a great entree to my chat with Soraya Shamali. She is a feminist author and columnist, director of the Women's Media Center Speech Project, and organizer of the Safety and Free Speech Coalition. And just last week, I talked to her about her new book, Rage Becomes Her. It is a fascinating, sweeping assessment about what American women are taught about anger, what boys are taught about girls' anger, and how that plays out for all of us in just about every venue of life. Here's part of our conversation. I do want to start with the inevitable. Granted everything that you've covered in your book, what were some of your thoughts as you watched the Kavanaugh hearing and as you watched him express all of his anger? So I was sad and angry and depressed. I I also laughed because I'd never ever thought I'd see a day when a man would use calendaring (laughs) to signal filial legacy. Yeah. So as he's crying, a very feminine thing, he's saying, but I'm the son of a father and I admire my father and you men need to toe the patriarchal line, even though I'm crying and I might be a little boy who needs the care of the white women around me. And what were you thinking in terms of how, and I I do not want to comment on Dr. Ford's presentation herself, and I don't want to make any assumptions about what was going on in her head, but watching her and watching how nice she was and how she was smiling through some of her testimony put me in mind when we see a woman recounting a trauma and they're so damn nice. What is going on there? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that most women would recognize the tightrope she was walking on, right? Be assertive, but not too assertive. Be kind, but definitely not angry, even though you need to act in self-defense. What struck me about what she was doing throughout was she kept adjusting, right? She kept, she kept fixing her mic, and she kept saying, well, does it work for you? And that actually maybe made me sadder than almost anything else, mm-hmm. because she was actually the only person in the room that should have been able to express indignation and anger at her humiliation and at the trauma that she was being put through again. And yet she was the person least able to do that. She pretty much performed, and I think that's the right word, in a way that many women are socialized to perform in those situations. Not because we irrationally think we're going to be punished, Mm -hmm. but because we will be punished, right? And so she happens to be a white woman, which brings with it all kinds of privileges. A black woman in that situation, Anita Hill 30 years ago, is an even more difficult situation just by being alive and speaking, right? Mm -hmm. Everything from her posture to the cadence of her voice really addressed the double standard in their behavior. Mm-hmm. There was, it was quite shocking, actually, to see it play out the way it did, because he, he arrived in an indignant, aggressive, pugnacious, hyper-masculine sort of, I'm angry and I get to be angry. And I think it just showed how anger is a social entitlement. Right? He gets to be angry, and he gets to exercise that emotion without it degrading anybody's sense of his rationality or logic. Whereas for women, we're taught to be 
emotional in terms of regulating our emotions and other people's emotions and are linked with emotionality, but then the emotionality is weaponized against us mm -hmm. because there's the assumption that we are not rational and that we're not logical and that we're not thinking clearly. Well, in fact, in the classic scenario, if she had in front of the public, in front of the cameras, right. in front of so many men, if she had come out and been frankly right. angry, what was she risking? Her Well, first of all, she was definitely risking her credibility, right? We, we know that there is a credibility gap that exists from many studies. It shows that men are assumed to be more authoritative, more knowledgeable. People have more confidence in them when they give expert testimony on complicated issues. So that already exists as a gap in our lives. And so we often have to bend over backwards to prove ourselves, right? I mean, I have 70 pages of citations in the book, and that's basically because I don't want to argue with awful people all day. Uh, they can go argue with the CDC or the United Nations or... They'll argue they'll with you anyway. They'll argue with me anyway, right? Yeah. But, but in fact, we have to go out of our way to prove and prove and prove and prove what we say. And at no point in life... Life, do we actually have the luxury or privilege of just saying what we know mm -hmm. and having what we know be taken seriously? And so all of her composure was really calibrated to trying to buttress her credibility, whereas he could lose his composure and still maintain, in some circles, credibility. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and we know from many other studies that, indeed, when men display anger, maybe in a courtroom, for example, there was a recent study uh, done about prosecutors in courtrooms that accru they, they accrue power. So an angry man will convince people to change their minds, whereas a woman who displays anger, the opposite happens. She actually becomes less powerful, mm -hmm. and people think she's less credible, less trustworthy. And um, it's not because anything about what she knew changed. It's because we have these stereotypes about gender and ethnicity. When a woman does get angry, look at her face and say she's angry. When a woman is not angry, when her face is in a neutral facial set, you have science about how that is interpreted and how a man's face is interpreted differently. We don't read men and women's expressions the same way. No, we don't. I mean, women's faces are expected to be pleasing and pleasant. So we're supposed to smile. And actually, like black people, we're supposed to smile in order to signal that we're not happy, we're not unhappy with the circumstances we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I don't mean, I don't know. I, I've been told to smile probably at least once a week my entire life by a man, almost always, very often by a man I don't know. And so it's really irritating to me when someone tells me to smile. So we, we sort of call a woman's neutral face a resting bitch face. And I even found surgery that was being advertised as a way to fix resting bitch face. A permanently installed permanently semi Permanently installed, you know. But actually, it's really kind of an irony because, in fact, men's faces at rest are bitchy. And we know that because of like a lot of work that's been done about how we attribute emotion to gender-neutral faces. If a, if a face is a gender-neutral face but has an expression that we tend to associate with anger, most people will say it's a man's face. And if a man's face is at rest, it is demonstrably more negative-looking than a woman's face at rest. Mm -hmm. 
You also, I was really pleased to see that this is not just about white women, that you did incorporate women from all walks of life in here. And some of the most interesting points to me came across as to how different those two experiences are. You talk about the difference that, you know, young black girls have and whether their mothers have been modeling the appropriateness of anger for them as opposed to what a white woman is raised with. So can you go into that a bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of our standards of behavior are pegged to the experiences of um, white men as our neutral objective state of humanity. And there are lots of examples of that that range from the way we design cities to the way we design bathrooms to the way we think of the idea of knowledge. And the same thing sort of happens in terms of how we think about anger. So a lot of the the common assumptions about girls and women and anger are about upper middle class white girls who were studied in studies for a long time. But in fact, the experiences of girls of different classes and races and and ethnicities are very different. And the point of a lot of the book is about how the emotion is socially constructed. So we think of the uh, of emotions in general as internal and private, particularly if we associate them with women, they aren't public and political, right? Mm-hmm. But in fact, our emotions are as socially constructed as anything else. We may have them internally, but they make demands on the world and then the world responds. And the way the world responds depends on all of these ideas about our identities. And so a young black girl in kindergarten and on is five times more likely to be suspended or expelled than her peers. And she's five times more likely to be expended, uh, uh, suspended or expelled for behaving in ways that don't conform to our ideals of white middle class femininity. And indeed, her, her state of being or her way of expressing herself, which might just be assertive and confident, is very quickly perceived as aggressive and angry and disruptive. And the behavior that she might be engaging in, for example, is seen in a young white boy as natural and a sign of leadership potential, right? And so if you've ever heard about the boy crisis um, in education, you may have heard that schools are feminized spaces and boys' needs can't be met and they need the freedom to be physical and uh, disruptive and rambunctious and on and on and on and on. But let a young girl behave in those ways, especially a young black girl, and she's actively punished for doing it. For girls of Asian descent, the stereotypes are a little different. There's a whole stereotype of the sad Asian girl who is docile and uh, a little servile and really won't challenge somebody for asking her to do something. And so anger seems particularly difficult in, uh, for, for a child like, like mm-hmm. that. And if you happen to look Hispanic, you just are expected to be sort of spicy, hot, and sexy when you're angry. It's kind of cute. You're going to be really cute when you're mad, you know? And so you can do this sort of ad infinitum. But yes, all of, all of those cross currents affect the way our anger is dealt with. I thought of this when a child was expelled in the past two weeks for not standing for the Pledge of Allegiance. Mm-hmm. And she was a young black girl. And in the picture of her that showed up with the news story, she looked like she's going to grow up to be a very strong woman because she did not seem to feel compelled to smile. Right. And she was very willing to defend what she had done and to point out that she hadn't been suspended before when it had right. happened. And it just really went right together with, with what's in your book. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is that 
Um, we talk a lot about the confidence code and the confidence crisis in girls, but in fact, that is young white girls. Um, young white girls and boys have the largest gap in self-esteem uh, by the time they're seniors. And the smallest gap is between black girls and boys, and actually black girls are the only uh, cohort in which by senior year, girls have slightly higher self-esteem than boys. And there are many, many reasons for that. Um, not the least of which is that we socialize white girls to practice a kind of femininity that supports the idea that they're vulnerable and in need of providing and protecting, which is a way of constructing masculinity that's also deeply racist, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's a whole dynamic to the fact that there are innocent white girls in the culture and that as Trump is fond of saying, they need protecting from raping Arabs, raping Mexicans, raping black people, and you know, China will rape the whole country. So, um, Supreme Court nominees. Supreme Court, you know, we can go, go from there. But I think the dynamic of learning to be a, an effortly perfect, sort of prototypically thin, high-performing white girl who also is not seen as a strong leader fits into the bigger cultural narrative, right? And so anger is really incompatible with everything I just described in a girl. Whereas if you are a young black girl and you don't have those options, there's no way you're ever going to fit that model. And also your life is much more in danger on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, you're much more likely to be in a situation where you are uh, molested or where you are suspended, or where you become part of a school-to-prison pipeline. And so black parents don't really have the luxury of protecting the innocence of their children in the same way. And their honesty and their attempts to um, make their children understand, I think, that their identity and their strength doesn't, isn't going to come from external validation, mm -hmm. ends up strengthening children in ways that maybe others are not. You know, one of the things we hear about a lot is how early young women are, are taught to obsess on their bodies. And it turns out that that goes far beyond, am I thin enough? Am I wearing the right makeup? It is about how am I conducting my movement? How is the set of my face? And young girls eventually externalize so much. They're watching themselves constantly as an right. observer that the authenticity of so many of their emotions is endangered. That's, that's right. In the United States, by the age of six girls already identify themselves as sex objects. And so they tend to engage, starting at a very young age, in what's called self-surveillance, which is the constant awareness of themselves as being watched. Their theories of the male gaze, there are all of these other ideas. What happens that if you have high rates of self-objectification, which women do, and which starts very young and continues until we're roughly 85, when you don't care anymore. But what happens if you have self-surveillance and self-objectification is you disassociate yourself from the feelings in your own body and you lose the ability to actually recognize the physiological signs of anger. So a racing heart, for example, or that sort of push of adrenaline that makes you feel like you're shaking. It often happens with women that they have those responses, but it doesn't connect in their brains with anger. So I don't know how many people here have had the experience three, four, five, six hours, two days, a week after of saying, actually, I was really angry when that happened. But you didn't name the anger in the moment. 
and a lot of that has to do with the sexual objectification that pervades our consciousness. Mm -hmm. It also has a second effect, which is that something called stereotype threat kicks in, which is that in an attempt to not fulfill a stereotype, we consume a lot of mental energy trying not to do that, and then we end up fulfilling the stereotype because we underperform in some way. Right. And if your brain is running on these two tracks at all times, you can't, for example, reach flow. You know, you can't reach that state of concentration that is required for, for mastery, mm -hmm. you know. And all of that actually makes people angry because they get very frustrated by the disruption of their thinking. And also contributes to imposter syndrome, which we hear yes. about in both male and female, of even if you get the credit for something inside, you're going, you really don't deserve this. Right. Part of that has to do with the fact that we have what's going on inside, and we keep suppressing that to present something else outside. Mm -hmm. So you, you find falsity in yourself. You do find falsity in yourself. And I think the key time is in this stage of early childhood socialization, where in order to basically be good people by making the people around us happy, um, usually between the ages of sort of seven and 10, uh, children will go out of their way to conform to the expectations of the society around them. And so coaches, teachers, uh, adults in their lives. And when they do that, they often will suppress emotions. And for boys, the dangerous thing that is happening is that they're cut off from being able to explore the full range of their emotions. So for boys, the idea of emotionality is considered a feminine de degradation. It makes them weak or vulnerable. They can't say, I'm scared, for example. But they're taught excessively about anger as a masculine property. Whereas girls, even when parents are reading books to them, parents will downplay the scenes of anger or change words related to anger and aggression. And um, they'll talk to girls about a full range of emotions and emotionality, but not about anger. Soraya Shamali, we have more with her in just a moment on the broadcast. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at Brad bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. I'm Angie Coro, and this is The Bradcast. In the midst of a conversation with Soraya Shamali, the whole thing will air on stations carrying In Deep with Angie Coiro next week. I want to stay for a moment with the whole idea of the necessity of being sexually desirable and how, how ingrained that is at a very young age. And I wonder what you think about the campaigns that we see with, you're sexy at any age, you're sexy yeah. at any weight, and nobody seems to get around to saying maybe sexy shouldn't be the point. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just sort of bullshit, right? Like, you don't have to be sexy all the time. There are times when maybe it's nice to be sexy, but being a sexy dentist really doesn't help you, you know? <laughs> so, so I think that that kind of framing is just more of the same sort of ridiculous sex segregation that is, despite people's protests, 
hierarchical. You know, I mean, men rule. That's really not in question. I don't really see how anybody can question that. Not politically, not in the financial world, not in the tech world, not in academia. I, I mean, maybe they don't rule as mothers because they're not mothers. So I think that this idea that we always have to be sexy, though, is important because, in fact, the surest path to a woman's glory or security is vicariously by being attractive to a powerful man. Mm -hmm. And that's still true. We can dress that up any way we want, but that's really not deniable. I think that it's just emblematic of the bigger problems. I don't know if you saw in the news that it was necessary for an embarrassed costume company to pull yes. their sexy handmaid's tail. No irony outfit. at all. Irony's dead. It's been flogged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Going into some of the questions here, what about men? They're not allowed to express emotions. How does that affect them? Um, it's not, I mean, it's a book about women and anger, but. It's very clear that men's performance of masculinity is pissing women off all the time. <laughs> That's also not in question, right? So it would be really healthy if we could ungender the world, but specifically ungender emotions in the way we teach children to grow into to people, mm -hmm. adult people. And what I hear when I hear the question, what about men, is awfully close to not all men. And why are you focusing on women? Mm. Recentering the man in the conversation. Right. And in fact, the problem we have is that men are always centered. And they may not feel like they're always centered, which is part of being always centered. <laughs> right? So there's a lot to be said about men and their emotions, but not here. Can you give examples of how women can or have made themselves both likable and aggressive? And this goes to how you talk about how important we find likability to be. I think that women do understand that there are real prices to be paid if they transgress in terms of gender roles or the way they act, right? So a woman who looks prototypically feminine is more likable automatically because what she's signaling is that she's following certain rules and that makes life easier for the people around her. Mm -hmm. For example, there was this great study about women who wear makeup in the office. And it's not that they are necessarily more attractive. It's that they are showing the people around them that they've spent money and invested in buying the makeup to make other people happy. Now, a lot of women say, I wear makeup because I want to wear makeup, which is also true. But in fact, the way it's translated is this signal that you're conforming. Mm -hmm. And so likability is really important for women. We see that in our politicians, our women politicians. And um, to be angry is the kiss of death. It makes you really unlikable for many reasons. Uh, one of the first associations girls have is that being angry makes you ugly. Again, this is a cardinal sin. It also makes you, quote unquote, masculine. Children by the age of four or five associate anger with masculinity. And so when girls or women are angry, they're seen as violating these gender roles. Um, and we saw it in the last election, right? I mean, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump could stomp and hit their podiums and look slightly unhinged and deranged, and they could leverage all this populist anger, and it wouldn't hurt them. It wouldn't make them unlikable. But if Hillary Clinton had even come close to that, she would have been even more held in disdain. You went into some of the behaviors in the book about what, what Donald Trump was pulling during the election. And one of them, I was mystified when this happened at the time 
that this was an effort on Donald Trump's part to score points. And that's when he was shadowing Hillary Clinton around the oh, stage, the when, stage. They, when they were free to walk during the debate. And he, he hulked behind her and he lurked behind her and he yeah. followed her. And I, that must have been perceived entirely differently by men than it was by women. Well, every, it was. every woman I talked to was like, God, that's creepy. Well, in the moment, yeah, I mean, in the moment, women were horrified because they're like, my God, this is a hulking, stalking man who's trying to assert this <laughs> physical dominance on her, something we're all familiar with as generally smaller people, right? And, and so, and many women automatically associated that with domestic violence and with the kinds of behaviors that abusers engage in, also well understood. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that even in the immediate moment that that was happening, you could see in social media this incredibly gendered response to his physical presence on the stage. It, it was really t terrible mm -hmm. to watch. Social media is a major double-edged sword when it comes to women trying to be themselves, to express their anger, right. even just, God forbid, to have an opinion on something. And that is throughout the book as well. You yeah. have had trouble with social media. Sure. I mean, I wouldn't really call it trouble. It's explicit rape threats, graphic pornography of gang rapes and mutilation, um, death threats. There's a whole range of things, you know, having your personal information shared, um, having threats made against your family. Um, the first, I'm sort of dusky. And if I am writing about racial justice, I could maybe, maybe be, maybe black, maybe somewhere. You know, that's when a lynching threat will happen. I also have an Arab-sounding name, so maybe I'm Muslim, so that's when the Islamophobic threats happen. I mean, really, it, it just it just is a mirror on the world, right? It has nothing to do with me. I've had to call the FBI. Only, only once did I call the FBI. I have called the police just to say, hey, this is happening, or hey, please be aware that this might happen, because there's a technique called swatting, which is when somebody calls in a fake report and says there's some criminal activity happening in your house and then a SWAT team shows up, you know? If you're a black person, that's really dangerous because the fact is that a SWAT team might shoot you, right? So yes, online there is this insane reassertion of masculine privilege in the most ugly and violent ways mm -hmm. that's very easy to see and clear to understand. And it's totally global and it's networked. And if we'd paid attention to it as an incipient authoritarian force that was moving through the culture 10, 12 years ago, we might not be in this position today. Someone in the audience wants to know, how do you think Kavanaugh's testimony would have been received differently if he was a woman? And acted the way he acted? And acted the way he acted. <laughs> <laughs> Hysterical. Well, I mean, is there any doubt? We're still having a conversation about whether this man can be judicious, you know, whether his sort of sanctimonious, outraged, entitled affect can be a fair reflection of his ability to make decisions. I mean, wrong. spontaneously and in fact, wrong. of course, she hadn't. She hadn't. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I mean, there are so many. Mm -hmm. They're just... I'm, try I'm, I'm struggling to come up with some right now, but I do list them in the book because you have to at least laugh a little, you know. Well, we had Rebecca Solnit here, and, mm -hmm. she was, and she's in the book as well, mm -hmm. and she was explaining to us the one night that there was a person, just as you've oh, experienced, yes. using her book against her, and, and she had said several times, I wrote that, that's my he book. He just didn't hear her. I wrote that, and he just went on. Yeah. He literally couldn't credit her with writing the book. Oh, he was telling her 
about her book. <laughs> and she's so gracious, you know, and so that's how she ended up coining the term mansplaining, which she herself doesn't like. She doesn't like the term. She thinks it's too much of a generalization. Um, but yes, he did that, and he went on. And then when it finally, her companion said, stop what you're doing, like, this is, you know, she, she wrote this book, he just picked up his toys and left. <laughs> he literally just turned and walked away. <laughs> a couple of people are asking about the price that you pay yes. when you decide to be a straightforward woman, be it emotional, be it angry, whatever. Mm -hmm. How can women, especially Asian-American women, break away from stereotypes without losing credibility? And I'll back to back that with another question about what if you lose opportunities? So chances are you will lose opportunities. And that's hard because you have to make that assessment constantly. What am I willing to risk? What is it worth to me? How fed up am I? Because we all get fed up, which is one of the virtues of aging. I think this happens on many levels, right? There's the interpersonal level, the professional level, the political level. It's very hard for us, for Asian American women, for black women, for white women sometimes, to engage in conflict in our private lives and to hold the men in our lives or the other women in our lives accountable for listening to us. Because the big risk to me in saying I'm angry, which a lot of us can't even say out loud, right? For some people, it is as simple of, as, seeing, as saying the words I'm angry, which makes them deeply uncomfortable for all the reasons that we're talking about. But the risk really is that you're going to find out how much it matters whether you're angry or not. You're going to find out whether the thing you're saying is important to you matters enough to the person you're with at the time. And that might be a spouse or a parent or a child or a friend. But that's a hard risk because what if the person doesn't care and then you have to deal with that? What if the person is really obstinate and selfish or narcissistic and expects you to behave in ways that are not reciprocated, mm -hmm. which I think for women is deeply uh, frightening and not not just psychologically, but also because we tend to be more financially dependent, more uh, tied to taking care of our children and our, our parents. There are all kinds of dependencies that come out of what I call in the book the care mandate, you know, this idea that we're just going to provide care for no cost invisibly as an engine for the culture and the society, and we're going to smile when we do it, right? Mm -hmm. But all of that makes us dependent, and so taking the risk of breaking connections is really very frightening. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that if you start interpersonally with private conversations, granular conversations, small step conversations, so that you yourself are comfortable with saying, I'm angry, this is what I need, then you can practice and practice and practice that. Sometimes it's going to be bad. It's going to be super uncomfortable. And we all have to, I think, get used to sitting with the discomfort. I am uncomfortable. The person with me is uncomfortable. But if we actually love and respect each other, we will find a way for it not to be uncomfortable anymore, mm. right? If you do that at home, it gets a little more easy to do it in the workplace. Because even workplace anger and conflict come down to relationships. You're, you're in a relationship with the, pre the person you work for or your coworkers. In that context, the penalty comes with you don't get a promotion, you don't get a, a salary raise, you don't get the opportunity, you aren't mentored, you aren't sponsored. And if that's the case, 
you can assess that and you can say that I, yeah, I need all of those things to happen. So what can I do? I can um, find out who else in my workplace feels the way I do. Chances are there are other people. Form a network, find allies that will um, recognize the problem at hand and either sponsor you or speak on your behalf um, or raise an alert that this problem is happening. Um, you can make the argument that the thing that is making you angry actually contributes to a better workplace environment if it's fixed, which is usually the case. Because if you have healthy, happy employees, you probably have a better business anyway, mm -hmm. right? Um, so there are all of these techniques that I do talk about in terms of the workplace. Politically, I think something different is happening. In times of political tension and tumult and conflict, women are giving more freedom to act with passion and anger. It's still considered a matter of women's personal issues, not sort of general political power or citizenship. There's still that division in the way we perceive the anger, but women are freer to do that. But what happens when things start calming down is that there's a reassertion of the norms and women are usually asked to step back into their place out of the public sphere. Mm -hmm. And um, we just don't know what that will look like here after this period. And one of the notable, there are two notable differences to me as to what's happening now. One is we have a generation of women who grew up with Title IX. So they grew up with sports and they grew up not just themselves with sports, which teach us how to manage conflict and work in teams and make separations between assertiveness and aggression and anger. But they, we also have role models that did that. So for one of the first times in history, we have this intergenerational legacy of women's leadership that's very visible and very physical and very public. Um, and then the second thing is, as bad as the internet is, it's also revolutionary for women because women can't be isolated in anymore. They can't be isolated in their homes. They can't be isolated in small groups in their religious pla you know, places of worship. You can basically be locked in your bedroom and talk to thousands of girls and women around the world or men who understand why this is important. I had one conversation with a girl in Nashville. She was 16, and I'd made a presentation, and she waited until everybody was gone, and, and she came up to me and she said, you know, I have a problem because in my family, if I raise any of these issues, I'm punished, I'm sent into my room, I'm not fed for a day, I'm not allowed out. And if I try and talk about why feminism is important to me or why I think double standards in our, in our family are harmful, that's what happens. And I said, well, do they take away, like, do you have a computer? And she said, yes. I said, do they take away your internet access? And she said, no. And I was like, well, that's like a front door to the world. Like, it just seems to me that your family is not going to really change. There's very little you can do to alter the circumstances in which you're living because you've actually been experiencing this for many years. You can, however, find a community. You can find other people who believe what you believe. And you can find um, solidarity and companionship and um, even work together on objectives that will help you from your own room. And that was just not possible before. You just couldn't do it. Right. What can we do to teach young girls earlier about anger? Well, I was going to say what we can do for young girls is teach young boys. Um, so I, I think we... We have to do it for all the children, right? You can't just do it for girls. A lot of the narratives around girls right now are based on the idea of self-help. And my book I don't think of as a self-help book. You have to self-help when your society doesn't help you. Like, 
that's what happens, right? And without getting into the sort of neoliberal economics and politics of the time, self-help exploded alongside that political change. So I think with young children, it would really behoove us as a society to understand why sex segregation is sort of the ordinal form of oppression and discrimination in this society. Mm -hmm. There are differences between children and differences between boys and girls, but they're much more alike than they are different. And we tend to exaggerate the differences to great harm to both boys and girls. Mm -hmm. So in order for girls to be allowed to express their anger in a way that has uptake or efficacy, we also simultaneously have to let boys cry or be sad or be artistic. You know, part of the problem with boys in school right now, um, the ones who aren't getting good grades or aren't engaged, is that they perceive things like language and the arts to be girly. And because they know that to be like a girl is bad, because that's what we teach them, they won't go close to those things. They won't touch those things, mm -hmm. you know? And that's a big social problem, like a big societal problem. Saraya Shamali, director of the Women's Media Center Speech Project and organizer of the Safety and Free Speech Coalition. Next week, the whole one-hour conversation goes online at indeepradio.com slash podcasts. And that is a wrap on the broadcast. I will be with you again tomorrow for Brad and Des as they continue their travels out there on the road. Until then, good luck, world. <laughs>